Welcome to the New Books Network. Of the many differences between the West and the rest of the world, the issue of religiosity is one of the most striking. In the UK, ever fewer people belong to a religion. The number, according to the census, is now around 50%. And even in the US, around a third of people say they are religiously unaffiliated. Elsewhere in the world, religions are growing. And in the world as a whole, nearly 90% of people uh, belong to a religion. Well, Robin Dunbar is Professor of Evolutionary Psychology at Oxford University, and he's been thinking about the reason for religion's appeal now and in the past for his book, How Religion Evolved and Why It Endures. So, uh, Professor, thanks very much for joining us. Uh, You're very welcome. And uh, it's a fascinating topic. So let's just begin at the beginning, as it were, with animism. And I wonder if you could talk us through, you know, what that was, what it consists of. Well, animism is really the earliest phase of religions, or at least it's it has long been viewed as being the earliest phase of religions. It tends to be associated with a kind of spirit world that uh, is directly involved in our world. So we have things like spirits of um, streams and spirits of fountains and, and springs and these kind of things to which people can appeal for health and, and well-being and success, as it were. And of course, we still do. I mean, this is where the uh, origins of throwing money into fountains and comes from. But it's also kind of a much more casual form of religion in the sense that it's sort of a direct relationship between you and some kind of spirit world, which is seen as being part and parcel of the physical world we live in. There isn't a kind of entirely separate heaven, if you like, where the gods live. The gods walk amongst us in that sense. In hunter-gatherers today, it's still very, this kind of animistic view of religion is still very much current within hunter-gatherers, living hunter-gatherers. And there it's associated very much with trance states, the induction of trance states through things like singing and dancing in particular. Um, And you go into the spirit world through trance and, and can sort of undertake travels in the spirit world, which can be very risky because um, the whole into the spirit world is universally viewed as quite small, often associated with the tree of life, at the base of the tree of life, as is sometimes said. And uh, finding the hole to come back out is extremely difficult. And if you don't find it, you may get trapped in the spirit world forever and your body in the physical world here will die as a result. So that's that kind of immersive sense of religion that seems to be very widespread among hunter-gatherer tribal societies even today. And I think really underpins still very much the kind of raw feels or emotional component of religion. So it it appears in the form of superstitions like the evil eye and... and, uh, beliefs about fairies and uh, and the like. We'll talk about trances a bit later on, but just on these animistic beliefs, are you saying, you, you said it's very widespread in hunter-gatherer societies, is it, is it, but not universal, right? Or, or is it almost universal, would you think? I, I would say it's pretty much universal, actually. I mean, it comes in sort of different shapes and sizes a little bit. There's no 
sort of unity, particularly to these views. They're just characterized by this very informal sense of a spirit world. There, there are no formal gods in the spirit world. There are simply, you know, spirits of places and so on. There are no moral laws usually attached to them. You know, the tribal societies concerned all have their own moral codes, but the justification for the moral codes is not because they were handed down from on high, but rather that they're just how we do things. You know, they're, they're our custom. Um, so, you know, these sort of appear piecemeal in in, in different tribal societies in in a sort of somewhat chaotic way, I think, but. That doesn't really affect the fact that that these religions are very very different to the what you might call the doctrinal religions that um, emerged later, sometime in the Neolithic, about eight to six thousand years ago, maybe. Just sticking with the animism for the moment, it does does the fact that it is so yeah you're saying nearly universal make you think that it does um, serve some purpose? And you can start thinking in terms of evolution for societies, because it serves some purpose for societies to have these kind of beliefs. It's certainly the case that these beliefs are functional in the sense that they provide benefits, not so much to the societies themselves, if you like, but to the individuals who are the members of the society. In, in other words, what seems to be the case, at least the view I take now, uh, is that... Um, these kind of religions have been very effective in creating a cohesive, bonded social community uh, because the rituals involved, and particularly the trance-based activities, create this sense of belonging and, and trust in, in the individuals you do it with. Religions also clearly have other benefits, and you see these sort of sprinkled about in most of these contexts, that there are health benefits associated with them, and these are reflected in the use of medicine men, if you like, to uh, and shamans to um, effect cures for diseases and, and various psychological conditions that individuals may be suffering from. There's also a sense in which religion functions to control the world. It's a kind of... It's a form of explanation for how the world works, if you like, and therefore offers some way of controlling the world and predicting the future. And so being able to predict the future, soothsaying is, becomes extremely uh, important, I think probably fairly early on. But these, these bits and pieces come in piecemeal across the course of history, really. But the benefit you're identifying is, is more to individuals than to the group. Yes, yes. I mean, well, you know, I, I take a very basic um, uh, evolutionary position on this. There is no such thing as evolution for the group. It simply cannot work. There's, there's no evidence at all for it, and there's no mechanism known that would allow it to work and produce the effects that people might want to claim for it. Evolution occurs for the benefit of the individual. Now, some of those processes that enable benefits to accrue to the individual come through acting together as a group. But what's important in this context is not the survival of some groups and the extinction of other groups, but the effect that those group level benefits have for the individuals who are members, so that members of cohesive groups are more successful than members of less cohesive groups. So it's the cohesive bit 
it's maintaining a coherent and long-lasting community that is actually being selected for rather than the group per se. The group gives, living in a group gives you benefits in terms of being able to protect yourself from predators or raiders or things like that, external threats. But the mechanism that's producing it is, is just creating a functional group that hangs together, um, at which point you get the benefits, if you like, for free. Now, you've mentioned a couple of other terms. Uh, well, you mentioned immersive religions and shamans, and there's, you have this term shamanic uh, religions. So can you just tell us what they are and how they relate to animism and before we get on to more doctrinal religions? Okay, so uh, let me start with shamans and, sh- and shamanic religions. Shamans, well, technically, shamans are found only in, in Siberian religions in the sense that there are people who have a specific role in in the community um, and a, a specialization which allows them to access the spirits that control our world, as it were, and, and cure diseases through that or, or foretell the future or, or facilitate your successful um, endeavors into the future, whether that's hunting or finding love or having babies or whatever it may be. That's the sort of classic definition of shamans but in a weaker sense shamans and shamanic activities appear in most of these hunter-gatherer religions almost without exception as with shamans proper they're invariably associated with trance dancing trance is the way you access the spirit world in the sort of siberian context you have specialized shamans who know the secrets of life if you like and do these things but in more generally in hunter-gatherers everybody takes part and and engages in trance activities often through things like trance dancing and so on and in that sense i refer to these as immersive religions because you're sort of immersed in this trance state uh, and everybody is all members of the community are immersed in it to, to some degree or another so i kind of use the words animism which is sort of being frowned on in in the anthropology of religion as rather old-fashioned although it's coming back into to fashion again i think but animism shamanism immersive religions i kind of use those words interchangeably they're kind of referring to the same kind of thing and I, I'm just not quite getting the distinction you're making between, the, the in the Siberian uh, context, you're talking about these sort of formal shamans and, let's say, a witch doctor in an African hunter-gatherer society. What's what's the difference? Uh, oh, it, uh, with respect to witch doctors, where they occur, not a lot. You get witch doctors in a lot of African religions, in particular tribal religions, but they do the same kinds of things in that they cure diseases and foretell the future and those kind of things. And very often they're associated with with trance. So the difference is not enormous. It's just that the term shaman came from studies of Siberian tribal societies. And so there's a tendency in the anthropology of religion for the Siberianists, those who study Siberian cultures, be very defensive of how the term shaman is used. I I think unnecessarily so. It's perfectly obvious that shamans occur elsewhere. But 
there's a there is a reasonable distinction i think between specialists in this area who have trained long and hard as it were in in the arcane arts that are involved in uh, shamanic healing and so on and the more general exposure to trance uh, through various kinds of rituals that are found much more widely and that most of the people in in the community would be involved in. And that's the only difference, I think. Okay. And, and, and then let's move on to doctrinal religion. So how did that happen? When did it happen? There's no evidence for formal religions, that's to say, with specialised places of worship, temples, if you like, or, or, or things like that, or indeed formal priesthoods uh, where people, you know, uh, are set aside, certain people are set aside and, and only do priestly things and don't sort of do mundane things or too much in the way of mundane things like grubbing a living out of the soil. So this is a difference with traditional shamans and uh, witch doctors where they will, you know, the shamanic activities that they engage in are part-time and, and more, less professionalised, if you like. So the appearance of religious spaces uh, or temples, as you might think of them, of priestly hierarchies, of icons in the sense of statues or, or the like, it seems to arise in the course of the early Neolithic. So this is probably kicking in about 8,000 years ago and, and over the course of the next couple of thousand years, as you see the growth in city sizes and settlement sizes into the kind of early famous Neolithic cities like uh, Jericho and Chattelhuic and places like that. Um, so you see increasing presence of these formal religions and they then very quickly become associated with more explicit doctrinal beliefs. So there are formal gods occupying heaven somewhere who sometimes are interested in what humans do, but very often aren't. All they want you to do is is make sacrifices to them. As, so long as you do the appropriate sacrifices, all is well in your world. But the gods don't have a particular interest in, in your behavior or anything like that. There are also associated, however, with moral codes that are sort of being handed down from on high a little bit more in this stage. Now, this appears to be associated entirely with the fact that populations are increasingly having to live in settlements which they can defend. If you look at Jericho famously and its walls, these walls clearly weren't put up for decorative effect. They're enormously costly to create and the whole structure of these early settlements is clearly designed for, for protection. So there are no ground law, ground level entrances. All the entrances are from the roof, for example. There are very often no windows to allow access at, at ground level. So they're these villages are very strongly geared to protection and the protection that they seem to be worried about is raiding by neighbours. And this goes back probably to the fact that that particular phase at the end of the last age, ice age, which started, kicked in about 10,000 years ago, resulted in the greening of the Sahara. The Sahara was extremely rich and the whole of that sort of latitudinal zone across the top of Africa 
through the Middle East, right the way through India into China, into the Great Basin in China, the Yellow Yellow and uh, Yangtze River Basin, was climatically absolutely benign and very productive. So it seems to have allowed populations to grow very rapidly and cause uh, problems from overcrowding. And, and the response to that seems to have been retreat from hunter-gatherer forms of economy into settlements, which of course then meant you had to invent agriculture to make that possible. So if you like, this is putting conventional causal logic for the Neolithic backwards from the way we usually think about it. We usually think about uh, the Neolithic as being sort of very strongly associated with agriculture. I think that's actually cannot be true. Agriculture, a agriculture was already going before the Neolithic proper kicked in. But more importantly, agriculture is simply the means of feeding populations that can't go out and, and wander around hunting. The problem was created by having to live in very crowded conditions for protection against raiders and living in crowded conditions like that for all mammals actually is extremely stressful and very destructive of things like fertility and, and uh, mental health and all the usual things we associate it with in our modern lives. And what seems to have happened, I think, is that doctrinal religions were kind of invented, if you like, in order to create more bonded communities, so, to, so as to reduce the stresses that living in crowded conditions unavoidably uh, create. So you, you, you can't live under the, in those sort of settlements unless you solve two problems. One is how to feed yourself and the other is how to reduce the stresses that would otherwise just cause mayhem to your, your social and, and reproductive lives. Right. So that gets us through another very important phase. And then I just wonder if there's a, a final phase, I mean, maybe you just don't think it, there is, uh, of sort of new age stuff, which is post-doctrinal <laughs> in some way. Well, if, I mean, in a sense, this distinction I'm drawing here between the kind of animistic, uh, shamanistic religions and the doctrinal religions you know, the doctrinal, I suppose most people would be familiar with the doctrinal religions in terms of the Egyptians and, and, and um, the, the kinds of gods they had. Um, that's tended to be um, the, the distinction that's been drawn really for the last century or so um, by scholars of, of religious history. They, they see these two phases. Um, what did strike me, though, was that a later phase appears sometime around two to 3,000 years ago, so in the final millennium BC, which seems to give rise to very large-scale, often monotheistic religions. So even though they have a pantheon of gods, there's still a supreme god that rules over them. So as Krishna uh, in Hinduism is, is viewed as the sort of overlord of all, all the gods and, and, and the world. These religions all seem to occur at the same appear at the same time during that thousand year period. It's sometimes known as the Axial Age. We've kind of known about that for a very long time. Again, for about a century or so, but um, it, the reasons for it and, and uh, exactly why and where it should have occurred when it did um, have remained, I think, rather opaque. But it, it strikes me that that appearance of all these religions 
occurred at the same time in the same latitudinal zone. It's this uh, subtropical zone, narrow subtropical zone that lies between the northern tropic and the northern temperate zones in, in Europe and Asia in, uh, in particular. So this is across the top of the North Africa through the Middle East into the India, uh, Ganges Plain in India and in, into the Great Basin in China. That's where all these Axial Age religions occur. These And these Axial Age religions are all the ones we recognize today as world religions, the great world religions, Hinduism, uh, yeah, Buddhism, Jainism, Christianity, uh, so on and so forth, and, and all the many other derivatives and the, the major Chinese uh, philosophers of Confucianism and, and Taoism, that... Um, they all appear kind of at the same time, and they seem to be a response to complete destabilization. The populations are very large at that time, so you're having political groupings, kingdoms or empires of a million people that are having to be kept in order. Uh, and at the same time, also, they're being subjected to massive invasions from outside their, their local region. So in in the eastern Mediterranean, this is associated with the sea people who appear out of the blue around 3,000 years ago and play absolute havoc with anything within striking distance of the coast around, around the north, uh, North Africa and up through the Levant and, and Turkey. If you look at the archaeological record in this area from that time, they're just, uh, you know, knee deep in in ashes. These these cities have all been burnt to the ground, and they're all attributed to these people, the sea people, who we don't really know who they are. They appear to come out of Europe down through Greece, primarily having been. Uh, but I think what's happened is, if you look at the climate, you s- suddenly realise perhaps why this has happened, because around four thousand. 300 years ago, there was a massive climate change period. The, the temperature of the rainfall dried dramatically. So um, the Sahara suddenly disappeared over the course of the next 500 years or so. So I suspect a lot of these rampaging folk were just mass migrations uh, from areas which had effectively turned into two deserts. So this is the period of when the Sahara, as we know it, as an enormous desert, first began to form. Remember before that, you had crocodiles and hippos splashing around uh, all over the Sahara in these enormous lakes and and river systems there, which, you know, we can see the traces now in the geological record. But of course, these species, you know, live a thousand kilometers further south now. So there's a massive sea change. And what's interesting is that you see exactly the same climatic change across the north of India, across the Ganges Plain, and in China in, in the Great Basin. And they're all associated with the collapse of empires. So the Paratan Empire in, in, in India, which had built itself up and was dominating the Ganges Plain, just collapsed overnight and, and vanished. And again, you know, the, these huge turmoil going on in the eastern Mediterranean as these boatloads of very fierce sea people were turning up and, and just settling. <laughs> Move over, let us in, we need somewhere to settle. You know, the Phoenicians are supposed to be, or were thought to be the descendants of, of the boat, of these um, sea people as they're, they're, they're known. The sea people was what they were referred to in the, the Egyptian hieroglyphic records. But but um, it's thought that they were, they once they'd settled, they became what 
we know as the Phoenicians. So put it its most general, you're basically identifying population density, competition for resources, yeah, these broad climactic changes or yeah, changes to, to the environment as driving change in the nature of religion. Yes, yes. In, yeah. in a word, that's exactly what the issue is. Yeah. And can I just ask you about the New Age stuff? After all, you know, after these world religions, do you see any significance in what's happening in the US and Europe today with these New Age religions? Um, yes, in a sense. I mean, I think it, the, the New Age religions as we have them now really have their origins to some extent back in this, the 1960s hippie movement when you first really see you know, sort of mass interest in these kinds of things and the setting up of communes in, in you know, the mountains or the deserts, as it were, in, in America in particular, and people going and, and living in ashrams in, in India and so on. Those kinds of interest in in um, what are very often philosophies in, strongly influenced by Indian, uh, Hindu and Buddhist uh, practices and, and thinking um, actually have an, a very well-established and, if you like, honourable history going right back into Victorian times when you had the theosophists and, and um, slightly lesser direct extent, the spiritualist movement, who you know, we're, we're sort of introducing these kind of new ideas, if you like, from, from the sub Indian subcontinent into conventional, well, I suppose in, in, in their cases, mostly Anglican contexts, religious contexts. So there is that has always been that kind of interest in these, these practices and beliefs in, in, in the East from a Western perspective. But I think they sort of really got galvanized in a big way in the 1960s and and what we see now with the new age religions is is simply the carryover of that whether they're they're associated with particular times of turmoil or not i don't know um i mean you can make an argument that, that the hippie movement in the 60s was a response to increasing dissatisfaction uh, with um, uh, the developing globalization and capitalization of uh, the economies uh, around the world in the aftermath of the Second World War, but you know, I don't. I, I would hesitate to 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 put a specific sort of cause in that sense on it. Although I think you know, a plausible case could be made, maybe. You've talked about trances a bit already, and I mean, one of the points you make in the book is that they're present in a lot of the major world religions now, although, you know, so the Sufi Islam, there's, there's speaking in tongues in some Christian churches and so on. But would I be right in thinking that that kind of experience has been pushed to the edge of those religions? You know, it's not the mainstream, is it? Or is it? Um, I, I think the main argument, actually, in the book is that those kind of trance-based experiences have never gone away. They are what actually provide the motor for religious experience and the reasons ultimately why people join religions and become become religious. Uh, um, that it's what you've had is with the rise of doctrinal religions, both in their original form and in the axial age form, you've had a kind of theological superstructure, if you like, imposed on top of the underlying animist, more raw feels kind of religious experience. And that 
religious experience has never gone away. The the kind of hierarchies in most of the big religions disapprove of it, certainly in the Abrahamic religions, perhaps less so in, in some of the uh, Indian religions, but certainly in the Abrahamic religions, all of them, Judaism, um, uh, Islam and, and Christianity have tended to view these kind of mystical experiences associated with, with trance and the like uh, as um, not a good thing. And I think it's because they're prone to trigger rather odd and heretical theologies and beliefs on the one hand, but also they tend to mean you lose the hierarchy, loses control of of the congregation. You know, once you have trance experiences, you have direct interface with God, direct communication with God is how it's usually expressed. And that means you don't much care about what the hierarchy thinks. <laughs> They're right. welcome to, 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 to believe in what they believe, but you know better as a practitioner of these things. So I think this is probably why why the hierarchies have been so nervous of them and have, have, have tried to suppress them very often. But I mean, they're there in the all the traditions and the, the Catholic Church uh, you know, has this very long history of individual mystics and St. Teresa of Avila and St. Francis of Assisi and, and, you know, sort of there are thousands uh, of well-known and less well-known names um, associated with this. There have always been a strong mystical tradition of this kind underpinning Protestantism. Most of the Protestant denominations, the smaller Protestant denominations, so Methodism and the Quakers and, and, and many others, began as as small mystical, essentially mystical sects. And hence the the name, the, 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 the common name for Society of Friends as the Quakers, because they quaked. <laughs> and they right? still okay. do go okay. into trance. Uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, well, okay, so I take fully the point that they haven't gone away. But I must say, when I was reading that bit of your book, I was thinking, okay, they haven't gone away, but they're going away. Uh, and maybe, but you're also sort of saying that's a power struggle, maybe between the hierarchy and the congregation. Yes, essentially so. And I, but I, I wouldn't say they've gone away at all. I mean, I think it, it's what continues to motivate the production of endless numbers of new sects and cults at the, at the base of all these religions. Um, you might you know, argue that Hinduism, for example, is a, a, the sort of ultimate case where they've been very tolerant of these different cults to, to local um, gods and, and have allowed them to re- remain in, in the fold, if you like, without sort of trying to suppress them. But I, you know, if you look at the history of Christianity, the history of Islam, even the history of Judaism, you know, it's fraught with these sects and cults bubbling up from underneath, some of which died out or were suppressed, and a few of which sort of expanded and grew and and, uh, became part of the establishment and created new denominations. And and, uh, the same is true of of Buddhism, you know, with its, its many different schools. These simply reflect the fact, I think, that religion is a small scale in its original evolutionary context, a very small scale phenomenon that it's designed to really um, create a sense of community in in communities of just a few hundred people. And it's very much a thing of that you experience that that you have these kind of trance like 
experiences of direct communication with the spirit world. That's what motivates the religion and, and, and seems to underpin all the other great religions as we know them at the end of the day. And, you know, that's why they all have trouble with sex bubbling up from underneath. Yeah, well, it's interesting. I'm, I'm speaking to you from a Welsh village with, I don't know, 2,000 people. And I think if you go back, they're all turning into holiday homes now, but if you go back to the original chapels, probably a dozen for, for a very small community. And, and you're saying that tendency to fragment is, is, is down to this other work you've done on the numbers of people that make a, an effective community. Yes, indeed. And in fact, if you look at the size of at least Christian congregations, sort of standard parish congregation sizes, they tend to be in this same number, about 150 people or so. Uh, anything over about 200 seems to start to unravel. And at that point, this is not anything we've done. This is this is the product of work by people who've been interested in, in church plantings, particularly within the evangelical Protestant tradition. Anything over about 200, the membership starts to lose a sense of belonging to the community. The the church is no longer providing them with the benefits which they had previously enjoyed. They tend to come less often. They certainly tend to contribute much less to the parish funds, as it were. And, and what seems to emerge out of that is one of two solutions. Either you split the church and, and put a daughter church somewhere else so as to keep the numbers small, which is what a lot of practices involve, or you start to have several um, priests or ministers in the um, church and effectively team, team ministries, as it were, in which you can then have the larger size of the congregation divided between, effectively divided between the ministers. So they, they feel that they still have this personal contact with the minister as their advisor and spiritual guide, as it were. And, and part of the problem there is, is not so much if just the limits that the congregants have, the, the members of the congregation have, but the priest or the minister themselves, that the priest cannot handle more than about 150, 200 people in terms of knowing who they are, knowing what their particular foibles and circumstances are, and being able to give them you know, the comfort and, and advice that, that they feel they will need. You know, it's, it, it's the limits on our ability to manage relationships that's lying at the root of this. Now, then, you, you, the title of your book has has the word enduring in it, and I want to ask you about that. Find at the end, you know, just how you see religion's endurance. But just so I've got two or three miscellaneous points, if you like, just before we get there. Which so, first of all, um, you've not mentioned, yeah, what I think many people would have thought was a function of religion, which was lessening the fear of death. And I was also wondering about near-death experiences and whether they're like almost the ultimate trance in a way. You know, you, you hear these accounts of people who see their body as if they're floating above their body when they're at the point of death and they, they come back to life. Have you got any thoughts on those issues? Well, let me say this. that I think probably most people would not invest so much of their time and effort over a, you know their three score and ten years or whatever they have for fear of the, the final moments. <laughs> you know, you tend to worry about those when you get closer to them. Earlier on in life, you, you wouldn't worry much about them, yet people are still very religious at that point. So I think 
those kind of the comforts for the dying of religion are clearly there. And, and I've heard doctors say that they, how much they are impressed by the fact that religious people die more smoothly with less turmoil, if you like, than people who, who are not religious. So it kind of makes sense that there's a sort of comfort factor there. But I think this is, you know, it's like the old problem of obesity. You know, you can tell people how, how, how bad eating too many beef burgers is for their health if, if, because it makes them fat and they simply aren't interested. That's far too far away. We tend to worry about the immediate context of our lives and, and, and the future will look after itself. So I, I don't think that's anything more than a, if you like, a blessing at the end of life. And it's a byproduct of the circumstances. But it's very interesting in the context of near-death experiences, because you're quite right that the kinds of experiences you seem to have for people who've come back to life and, and be able to recall their experiences is very, very much like trance. Uh, it's the, they have the same sense. But what's characteristic of trance very often is you have this sort of flash of light, um, which is sort of immersed and suffused with this sense of warmth and brightness and and you seem to get much the same sort of thing it it, it it's, seems to be part of bits of the brain shutting down and triggering in a massive endorphin response in the brain it's, it's it's part of that natural bonding system that we have that creates our communities uh that you know they're they are one and the same thing i think so um yes you know that probably if you believe that what you're seeing is you know, God welcoming you and, and uh, beckoning you forwards, as it were, at the moment of death, then, you know, you can see why it's, it's, it makes it the whole process easier. Just wondering about animals. And, you know, you talk about community and some animals, they like groups. And Jane Goodall had an account of chimps who she thought were having religious experiences in the sense that when I think it was very heavy rain and, and floods and these sort of big natural events and she thought they were in awe of the event and I, I think I'm right in saying that they did it together you know it was it, 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 they experienced it as a group was that a religious experience? I would say not you, I can see how one might view it as a kind of religious or even pseudo-religious experience in that sense, because it has many of the features of religious experiences, mass religious experiences, as we now have them. The The issue really is, is twofold. Well, let me say that I think it possibly explains where the origins of some of the sensible uh, forms of religious experience and the ecstasy of religious experiences comes from. Here's the sort of beginnings of it, but we're not really seriously in the territory of, of religions proper. And there's a difference between kind of fear of environmental uh, events, if you like, and, and having an explanation for those environmental events in terms of a, a spirit world. The chimpanzees, you know, responding, if you like, to the, the fear of and the surprise of the downpours uh, that they might get. But they don't, or they're very unlikely, we have no evidence that they have a sense that this is the gods doing something, even in even in a sort of uh, old-fashioned sense of, you know, lightning being Thor's uh, uh, hammer striking the clouds and all these kind of things, beliefs. But there, there is the, the real distinction that comes in the fact that 
I don't think, well, it is the case that none of the group sizes, uh, community sizes of any primate, any monkey or ape, comes close to the size of communities that humans live in. And it seems that religions were an add-on mechanism for bonding these larger communities, these, these groupings of 150 or so people in, in a local community that you have in all tribal societies, all hunter-gatherer societies even now. Chimpanzee and, and old world monkey groups don't exceed 50 on average in, in, in size, and that seems to be their limit. Now, there's an additional reason for thinking that it's very unlikely to be religious experience in, in, in chimpanzees in that religious experiences require you to be able to think about worlds that don't exist. So-called mentalizing is the ability to imagine what somebody else is thinking or correctly imagine what somebody else is thinking. We can manage very complex chains of clauses, propositions, if you like, about those kind of imaginative world phenomena. That's how why we can write literature, why we can do science even, and of course, why we can have religion. Propositions of religion are extremely demanding in terms of brain power, the neural mechanisms that, that are involved. Chimpanzees are on the way there. They certainly do better than monkeys and most other, well, all other birds and mammals in these terms, but they are on the scale of it. They can do about as well as a five-year-old child, um, whereas adult humans are two to three times more competent in these particular cognitive terms than a five-year-old child is. Five-year-old childs are just on the threshold of this extraordinary ability to live uh, inside your mind, in a virtual world inside your mind, which allows us to imagine that there are other places, other spirit worlds with other kinds of organisms living in those spirit worlds that is really required for religion. And finally then, let me ask you about uh the enduring power of religion and its capacity to, to, to stick around. So your, your basic argument is that there are, there are good reasons why religions exist. They have benefits for groups and by extension for individuals and they have individual benefits uh, and therefore they will endure. Yeah, I think it's, I mean, they, the benefits are clearly there, although one has to say, you know, it really rather depends. Religions have a bad habit of being very destructive in, in their views of other religions or other people that don't belong to your religion. That tends to be associated much more with once you get these religions of any substantial size in the kind of hunter-gatherer context, which is what religions evolve to bond communities in. It's much more relaxed in, in, in that respect. There isn't this kind of competitiveness between between major faiths. So in that sense, it's very good for you. So on the small scale, it's very good. And at the individual scale, there are clearly large benefits, both in terms of your membership of a community, your sense of being part of a supportive community, but also the health benefits and so on that accrue in addition, and how it operates on the mega scale of the modern world religions when it can be very feisty and, and, and competitive. That said, I think the real issue is much more the fact that it's the raw Religions as, religion as a raw feels experience, this experiential component to it, sometimes referred to as religiosity, this feeling of transcendence and engage, direct engagement with, with another mind, say, 
God's mind in some sense. It's that that that's is very much part of the human condition and will mean that religions will always be with us because people will always have those experiences and they will always seek, seek explanations for it. And it's quite clear that no matter what kinds of scientific uh, evidence or theories you might adduce to explain these, that that doesn't prevent you having beliefs about the existence of a, a a higher world, a higher spiritual world. Lots of scientists are religious. The two are not necessarily exclusive, even though most people would would regard, let's say, biological explanations or the explanations of physics for the rest of the universe as excluding the possibility of the existence of gods or heaven or anywhere like that. Nonetheless, you know, it's one thing to understand and know something and quite a different thing to believe in your in your heart of hearts, your kind of inner experiences that you have. And I think those two worlds do not really overlap. Thank you so much for taking the time to explain uh, your thinking on all this. It's been very, very interesting. Thank you, Professor. It's a pleasure. <laughs>